Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. As these breakthroughs occur, folks like myself and, and my peers in the industry will rally behind these brilliant scientists and help them go from idea to company to business plan to clinical trials, regulatory approval, and then into the hands of the patients that need them. And as we form this unprecedented number of companies, I could easily see a tripling or a quintupling of the number of companies that exist today, all fighting in different directions against disease. We are going to, as an industry, have a need to hire hundreds of thousands of people. And that becomes a, a substantial competitive advantage for the United States of America versus other countries out there. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you're listening to I Am Bio. currently fighting one of the most dangerous national security threats in the history of the United States. It wears no uniform. It carries no weapon. It's microscopic. It's deadly. In the throes of the greatest biomedical crisis the human race has ever faced, we also see a hopeful future dawn. But how can that be? Well, it seems as though the greatest medical threat we've ever faced is happening concurrently with our greatest understanding ever of how to survive and conquer it. Historically, drug companies have used protein-based medicine to treat the symptoms of disease. Think little white pills. But today, biotech companies are using breakthroughs in our understanding of genomics to prevent and cure disease. Think complicated injections and syringes full of living medicine, there are a lot of mixed messages right now about whether we can eradicate the threat before us or whether an end to the coronavirus nightmare is still years away. Put the leadership of bio in the optimistic camp. With more than 740 COVID medicines in the pipeline, biotech investors have become some of the most important decision makers in the effort to end this global crisis. And one of those investors, Alex Carnell of Deerfield Management, sits on the bio board. And as our bio investor forum kicks off today, and we learn about the incredible progress we're making in the fight against COVID and other deadly diseases, we're entering the dawn of a golden age of medicine. Today kicks off a comprehensive three-day virtual education and partnering event. We have venture capitalists, corporate VCs, angel investors, private equity, hedge funds, and public market investors from 24 countries. It's not too late to sign up at bio.org. Our guest today is one of our industry's most successful money men. 
Alex Carnell is a managing director at Deerfield, a big-time investment firm in New York that manages $10 billion in assets and specializes in advancing healthcare companies that can cure disease. Alex, welcome to I Am Bio. Thanks, Michelle. It's a real pleasure to be here with you, and, and thanks for all your leadership. It's been amazing to watch you take the helm of bio, and, and it's great to, to follow the pace you set. Working with great innovators like you makes it makes it easy. So, so Alex, in our young industry, we've only recently come of age with the approval of the first genomic breakthroughs. Biotech is barely out of diapers in some respects. <laughs> CRISPR's creators just won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry last week. And now biotechnology is being called on to save the planet from a pandemic and to do it in record speed. You've been investing in biotech companies for almost two decades, so perhaps you saw this day coming. But for the average American who is only recently focused on biomedical progress, it it almost seems like we've gone from chalky white tablets to Star Trek medicine overnight. Can you talk about the state of our industry in 2020 and our ability to conquer COVID? I can empathize with people. I can see how this feels a little Star Trek-y. You know, all of a sudden you go from uh, everyday life to a world where you're hearing about vaccines and antibodies and targets and companies chasing after it. And there's an, an unprecedented amount of information coming at us every day, even for us as experts. It's so exciting because I think this is probably the most promising time in the history of our industry. I'm seeing an industry that is completely united as one in our fight against this virus. And I'll tell you what, we've got so many programs that are already showing extremely compelling data. And that gives me hope. That gives me hope and the audacity of hope that we are going to beat this virus and that our industry will play a major role in making that come to be a reality. Biotech keeps you extremely busy, but you've made time on your schedule to accept Governor Lamont's appointment to serve on the Reopen Commission. Can you tell us about why you took on that responsibility and how difficult it was to make decisions where your choices were whether to endanger lives or facilitate economic ruin? I'll tell you what, Michelle, this is why you're the best. You get you get right at the heart of it. It's um, it was it was, it was you know on one hand, I guess why so why did I do it? Well, what I love about Deerfield, what I love about my partners and, and the group of people I get to work with every single day, uh, is we all come together behind. Uh, a very clear belief. And that's a belief that a healthy life is our most basic human right. But we also come together in situations where we're uniquely positioned to do work that would matter. And there was nothing more important at the time when, when Governor Lamont reached out for me to come help him um, than for us to join the fight. And, and at Deerfield, you know, we are in an incredibly privileged position because we have such a substantial asset base. It allows us to invest in accumulating data, insight, and expertise. And when you think about this information base that we have, you know, in many ways, it's, it's probably at a higher level of sophistication and with a broader range than what, what a state government can get on its own. You know, I, I, there were moments of darkness where you're, you're sitting up at three o'clock in the morning and you are absolutely thinking about, well, what are the absolutely clear consequences of decisions of trade-offs between opening businesses and people now taking on new risks and having their lives endangered versus the other end of the spectrum, which is if you don't open up anything, you know, we're in a situation where we can have very substantial economic ruin and people struggling and struggling. And what is the cost of that? 
you know, what are the, the social determinant costs of people not being able to work and not being able to produce for themselves and their families? And how do you weigh those trade-offs? And it becomes very emotional. And, and I wrestled with it for, you know, almost tear up a little bit thinking about, it. you know, you wrestle with these trade-offs and, and how you make these decisions. And, and ultimately, you have to get back to data. You have to get back to a pragmatic approach. Um, and you have to be extremely thoughtful in trying to bring together the right group of people that are willing to, uh, without limitation, challenge where the concepts can be wrong and help to reveal the unintended consequences of all different decisions. And that's why it takes so much time, because we had to obsess over every element, every detail here, so that we can get that balance as right as possible. Hmm. You know, it has been a, a heartbreaking season, and weighing those costs and those decisions are so hard even for individual families, let alone for communities. You know, you and I have talked before about how you almost see your role as as picking out unintended consequences throughout all of your field of work, you know, applying economic game theory. Did that type of thinking come in handy in wrestling with these choices? A absolutely. I think, you know, having an investor mind in the mix, when you looked across the, the team that the governor assembled in Connecticut, uh, it led us to ask those questions. It led us to uh, challenge the hypotheses and keep them looping and looping until we can get to better and better answers. And, you know, if you think about the, the complexity of the decisions that needed to be made here, there were health considerations and there were economic considerations. And so we had incredible minds around the table from the health perspective. We had incredible business leaders around the table from the economic perspective. And really the role that I was there to play was the bridge between the two. So you've had quite a bit of success. The nutmeg state has some of the lowest COVID transmission and death rates per capita of any state. What do you think was the most important element of the plan? What was the secret to the success? Governor Lamont set the pace. He said, you know, look, we are going to first and foremost do what's right and protect our, our citizens, but we're going to figure out how to bring together the best minds in our state to give us the best chance of being able to get through this. And as soon as he shut down the state, he immediately moved to how do we get to that new normal and how do we get organized to, to come back and build back better? And that's where I think the element of public-private partnership was, was really a competitive advantage in, in Connecticut. You know, the governor looked in, in, at, at the team that he had within the, the public sector there to support him, and it's an incredible group of committed people. I mean, these, these are people that were working 20 to 22 hours a day doing everything they could to support the state. And he recognized quickly that they were just out of capacity constraint. And because you know, he needed capacity and he needed a broader range of insight and information, he reached out to people on the private side that are leaders that would donate their time. And the components of success were not just what we would open and when we would open it, but the key for our plan was how we would open it and how we would move essentially from a binary open, closed environment to one that could be gradually dialed up and dialed down so that we could integrate data and have that data drive us to where we would take risk, how much risk we were taking, and when we would be dialing that back. And I think when you look across that continuum of leadership, public-private partnership, and pragmatism, it's what allowed our plan to stand out from some of the rest. I love that. So as we pivot from the civil response to COVID to the scientific response, where you've also been playing a pivotal role, let's talk a little bit about all this innovation. There are more than 740 COVID medicines in development today. All of these have been started since the beginning of the year. 
vaccines, antibodies, antivirals, and treatments for the long-term health problems that COVID will cause. We've seen strong investment in vaccines, but it's also important to get that money into better diagnostics and therapeutics because we don't know how long it will take to eradicate COVID or even how successful the vaccines will eventually be. How does the investment community assess the COVID space? I think that's a great question. So our our job as investors is to produce returns that are substantial enough so that we can keep allocators of capital, large endowments and foundations, pension funds, et cetera, that have these, these huge pools of capital. We need to produce returns enough for the level of risk we're taking that keeps that capital interested in being behind us. These allocators themselves are not the experts in the space but they hire us as investors to be the experts on their behalf, essentially be an extension of, of, of their capital management plan. <clears throat> and so we have got to be able to produce a certain level of returns in order to keep that capital. And so our, our work then becomes focused around how do we organize the right people, the right processes, the right insights to be able to appropriately assess risk, reward, certainty, and asymmetry And uh, when you think about how much innovation is going on at an unprecedentedly quick pace around vaccines and the opportunity set for vaccines and antibodies, it's pretty incredible, but at the same time, it's really complicated. And so we have to respect that complexity in how we think about where we're going to place uh, our our time and our capital in order to be able to enable the innovation to go forward. And, And so what you find is, uh, there are many moments where these companies and these these concepts for treatment are are very actionable, and where we can get behind them because it's in the earlier stages, and you know there's there's enough certainty to a minimally detectable level where we can get to those return thresholds that will will satisfy our investors and fit within the context of a portfolio. But like with everything, you know the valuations and the opportunities are moving constantly, and this is a hyperdynamic space. You know, I think one of the other areas that you touched on, which is really important to not lose track of here, is the diagnostic space. You know, I think if you were to take a step back and reflect on a learning from the experience around COVID, you know, probably as a country, one of our biggest deficits was just how slowly we moved to get a robust um, infrastructure in place to be able to test people. It was as if we were flying our national ship without any radar. And and as we have improved our our ability to get data on on how many people have the virus, how quickly the the virus is spreading, where are the hot pockets and how do we act? You know, we are getting better and better at managing this. And so uh, what we need right now as a country to very quickly get out of the the sort of confines of the way we're operating is a rapid diagnostic and it has to be very low cost. You know, we need uh, companies to be pushing and there are some great ones out there doing it right now that we're excited about. But we need people to be pushing for you know, a point of care test or a point of site test where you can have a result within 10 to 15 minutes and it only costs a few dollars. When we get to that moment uh, as, as a country, uh, as a community, we're going to have a lot more certainty that we're operating around other people that aren't carrying the virus and aren't transmitting the virus. And it's going to be a really effective tool in dampening the spread of this and getting past it. It's so inspiring to think of a day where people are no longer afraid of their neighbors and we're able to return a little bit to normal. Well, I think folks can hear, given your answers thus far, that 
I think you're one of the most optimistic and thoughtful voices in our sector, and you have the portfolio to back up your confidence in this biorevolution. So as a biotech investor, what's so different and exciting about this moment in our industry outside of the COVID space? What's really so exciting right now in biotechnology? We are about to enter the golden age of therapeutic development. I mean, this is probably one of the most exciting times in our history. And I'll give you my prediction, Michelle, because I think that stuff is fun to put out there. So my, my prediction is if we look back 20 years from now, what we are going to see is one of the most fruitful times in terms of the number of medicines that we get approved, but more importantly, the level of efficacy, you know, how well these medicines work for the people that need them will also hit an unprecedented level. And that means we are going to just have a greater and greater impact on people on our ability to lessen, lessen suffering. And we're going to have a greater and greater impact in conquering diseases. And there's nothing more exciting than that. You know, when I wake up every single day, each time we produce a return for our investors, each time we have a success, the thing that is most exciting about this world that I get to work in every single day is that that means definitionally that we have more medicines moving forward. We have more technologies moving forward. We have more of these being approved and getting to people that need them. Uh, And that's an incredibly virtuous cycle to be a part of. There are thousands upon thousands of diseases today without treatments. Uh, they're brutal diseases, they're lethal diseases, and they affect people all over the world. And uh, if you think about uh, the fact that just today, we have 5,000, maybe probably even more, over 5,000 medicines that are in development, over half of which are completely new approaches uh, to eliminating disease, we are setting up for a tailwind of growth that's going to drive this industry forward. And so what comes from that improvement in science, what comes from this step function, our ability to go from from the lab bench and the inside of that brilliant scientist to the bedside of somebody suffering uh, is an unprecedented number of new companies that will evolve. As these breakthroughs occur, folks like myself and, and my peers in the industry will rally behind these brilliant scientists and help them go from idea to company, to business plan, to clinical trials, regulatory approval, and then into the hands of the patients that need them. And as we form this unprecedented number of companies, I could easily see a tripling or a quintupling of the number of companies that exist today, all fighting in different directions against disease. We are going to, as an industry, have a need to hire hundreds of thousands of people. And that becomes a a substantial competitive advantage for the United States of America versus other countries out there because we have a thriving, incredible, and productive biotech industry right here in our country. And many other countries have crushed that industry because of the decisions that they've made around pricing and because of the, the sort of regulation that they've put around it. In the United States, we still have a free market. And free markets bring capital, they bring uh, incredible people, and they bring an energy that allows us to solve complex problems over and over again. And so my, my view here is that, that the biotech industry will be one of the greatest sources of job creation and one of the greatest uh, resources for our country to pull us back out on the other side of COVID. And I think what we're starting to see now, and I'm really excited about is many governors out there recognize this and they're starting to get plans in place and get organized around how do we create biotech centers of excellence? How do we attract biotech companies to set up their business in our state? And how do we create an incredible environment for them to be successful? 
Because as these companies become successful, as they pass through the different phases of their development, as they grow and hire more people, that leads to a virtuous cycle of improvement, and both in terms of people having the um, the the sort of solidification of, of employment and also the economic benefits that flow through to the state. So, so I'm, I'm optimistic and, and very excited about what uh, our industry might be able to do to contribute to the economic rebound on the other side. What do you say to those who say, well, the American public is really paying for the science in academic research and federal research, and they can really do the job of bringing medicines to people? The federal government plays an incredibly important role in funding the basic science part of the development continuum. If we don't have that capital to fund this basic scientific research that helps us to understand sort of the underlying mechanisms of different biology and how we can take these insights and start to form hypotheses, you know, the whole virtuous cycle will never start. But we've got an incredible program in place today. We, we have you know, billions of dollars that come from the NIH every year, and those dollars are being allocated across the country to help enable this basic scientific research. But as you move from basic science to an idea for a medicine, a strategy to get that medicine through clinical trials and then ultimately into the hands of patients, you know, the, the financial and human capital need behind that is orders of magnitude greater than that basic science investment a budget need that's far in excess of what you know the government is currently spending today. And second, it needs to be structured in a way that brings some of our most brilliant minds together to get behind this work because it's incredibly complicated. Trying to solve the puzzle of what it takes to defeat a disease and come up with a, a medicine or a therapy that can go and uh, you know attack the the heart of the biological issue that exists requires a wide range of expertise and incredibly talented and brilliant people. And so you need the opportunity to incentivize these people to come spend their time focused on producing medicines versus focused on producing A, B, C, or D in other industries. And so that means we need this to be a free market. We need this to be an opportunity where people can be economically aligned with the value that will come from them committing their lives and their time to that great moment of discovery. And that can't happen in a contained environment where it's it's simply based on on, on salary and, and contained dollars that are limited that come from, from the federal government. It also means that you have a free market that's identifying where are the best opportunities to be allocating those dollars because they're going to allocate them to where they see the greatest possibility for return. And you're not going to get that if it's going to be kind of a centralized process that's, that's organized and, and uh, led by the government. And so I think the environment that we have here today is one that allows us to have the greatest opportunity to produce the most uh, number of invest of not investments but medicines and to have the highest level of efficacy behind them you know i love that because it also reminds you that the private sector doesn't have the same political distractions that sometimes the public sector has. I mean, when you're starting on some of these development programs, you have to stick with it for years because you see the patient need and the scientific opportunity and not get distracted by other political priorities. And and I don't I think you only get that stick to itiveness in a private sector model. Uh, yeah, I love I love that word, stick to itiveness. You know, when you first make that initial investment behind a great idea and you start to form a company behind it, you have a plan. And that plan is very systematic. We're going to do A, B, C, D, and E, and then we're going to have a medicine and it's going to go to patients and it's going to be great. 
out of the thousands of different experiences that I've been fortunate to be a part of, <laughs> I think I can only remember one that ever went A, B, C, D, almost E, then E, and then we got there. And it's, um, it's, it's incredibly uncertain, the path ahead. And, and that's where, you know, you have a mix of understanding the economic proposition of what lies ahead. You have great people around the table. And, and no matter what the plan is, you also have to have the fortitude and the perspective around the hope and impact that can happen on the other side to stick with it. And there can't be distraction because there are so many ways for these programs to fail. There are so many ways to get off the rails. And you have to be uh, absolutely focused on, on being data-driven each step of the way forward and not waver from that. So you're bullish on the advances we're making in, in drug discovery. But let's talk a little bit about that uncertainty. You've said that tools like AI might help companies guess right more often on targets, leading to faster approvals and cost savings. Can you break that down for us and let us know how soon you think that will become a reality? Oh, it's it's real right now. So, you know, what, what we're seeing is this. Um, Matt Nelson, actually, in, in 2015, uh, wrote an incredible paper that basically looked at the, um, the value of having a genetic basis for a target that you were going after. And, and in that work, what we saw is that when, when there's a genetic basis for the, the target of interest, you have an almost 2x plus increase in the probability of success. Um, on the back of that, there's been several other papers that have come out that have looked at everything from genetic impact to the impact of having sophisticated biomarkers or sort of early signals that, that a medicine is hitting what you want it to hit and it's doing what you want it to do, uh, to the value of how we even deliver the drug. If we use uh, a pill or a small molecule, if we use you know, a, a biologic or a, an antibody, We've, we have lots of good data that's showing us the differential and probability of success for all of these different choices and all of these different overlays for how we go about saying, here's our program for developing the medicine and here's how we're going to do it. And uh, we happen to be in a world right now where in our industry, there are um, many, many disparate data sets that exist out there that have not yet been organized in a way that allows you to see that whole picture. And today we are also benefiting from the fact that we are probably at one of the most advanced data, data science and engineering uh, moments uh, in our history. And these two worlds are colliding. And oftentimes when you, we have our greatest innovation is when different worlds and focuses come together to do things that are different than what had been done before. And we are seeing it and we're doing it at Deerfield. We're right at the intersection of the science and the data science and the tools. And they're coming together. And the consequence of this great work is we're seeing you know, much shorter cycle times between our different phases. The result of that is we're bringing approval timelines down almost in half. Costs, are, costs to develop are going lower because we're able to cycle quicker and because we're able to get the time to approval to be lessened. Uh, and what this means ultimately for us and what it means for us as an industry and as a society is we're just going to get more medicines per dollar that we invest and because we're going to have increasingly higher uh, probabilities of success, we're going to have increasingly greater impact because when we have success, these are medicines that, that do incredibly um, favorable things for people that are suffering. We're going to get more dollars that are going to want to invest behind that. And so we're, we're, we're in this, this really interesting part of the growth curve where people are finally starting to appreciate how these worlds are colliding and just how impactful the other side of it can be. Finally, a crystal ball question. 
Where do you think the country will be in three years with the pandemic, our economic recovery, and the advancement of our industry science? <laughs> I love this question. We're going to beat this. Now, we're going to get past this without a doubt. Uh, we'll all look back on this period and we'll be better for it. You know, our, our country, our lives, they're in this, this moment of pause. But from pause comes reflection and reflection that allows us to figure out how we go forward and how we can do things better, more efficiently, and how we can all be a part of shaping our future. We're in this new normal that's going to get behind us. And, and when I think about our industry and the role we're going to play, we're going to continue to make us all proud. We're going to conquer even more diseases. We're going to lessen even more suffering. And uh, we're going to look back on this time and realize that we had the fortitude to get through things that were tough. Well, Alex Carnell, those are words to part by because they give us hope. So thank you so much for joining us and having such a wonderful and illuminating conversation with me. That was my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Michelle. And, uh, and, and thanks for all the great work you're doing. Well, that's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice or even better. If you've learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Biopod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of the heroes and sheroes in lab coats, please visit iambio.org. And don't forget to visit bio.org slash votes to make sure you're registered to vote. On our next episode, we'll focus on the price we're paying for climate change. We know industrial biotechs are playing a key role in producing renewable chemicals and sustainable fuels that will sustain our future. But what about biopharma companies? What are they doing? Biogen is modeling how health companies can simultaneously protect the health of patients and the environment. That's next Monday on I Am Bio.